thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Here's a thought from the 78-year-old US President Joe Biden. When it comes to wealth creation, he said, we should have learned by now that trickle-down does not work. I expect I wasn't the only one surprised by his remarks. Wealth creation is our subject this week. How it works or not, and how it's changed. Does religion play a role? And is the stereotype of frenzied, ruthless financial traders wide of the mark? Here's John Coates of the Judge Business School at the University of Cambridge, giving us a snapshot of the 1990s. In the dot-com bubble, I was struck by the fact that, that traders at the time were acting very different from the way they acted before the bubble and after the bubble. They were displaying classic symptoms of mania. They were overconfident, uh, they had racing thoughts, diminished need for sleep, and they were carrying themselves in such an odd way I began to suspect that there was a chemical involved. John Coates there on The Naked Scientist Show, Diana Amira's Best Bits. My guests this week are the distinguished economist Sir John Kay fellow of St. John's College, Oxford, and author of many books and papers, including Greed is Dead, which he co-wrote with Paul Collier. John was awarded a knighthood this year for services to economics, business, and finance. Congratulations, John. Thanks very much, Ed. And Dr. Ahmed Zaidi, a postdoctoral research fellow at the Cambridge Computer Laboratory, who specializes in machine learning and education, and is also an economic advisor to the government of Pakistan, and sits on the Wolf Development Council. Welcome, Ahmed, to Naked Reflections. Thanks, Ed. Great to be here. John, is it fair to attribute the worst excesses of the financial markets to egomania? I think egomania doesn't get it quite right. I'd describe it as a sense of entitlement. 
which is actually not quite the same thing. And when we talk about egomania, there's a certain camaraderie in the financial world, which is inconsistent with that, or at least among groups of people. So even in, for example, the LIBOR-fixing scandal, which is um, a fairly extreme example of essentially corrupt activity in the, in the finance sector, you had people exchanging emails saying things like, I owe you one, and we're in this together. In a sense, they were in this together. It's corrupt, it's unpleasant, but it's not simply egomania. Was there ever a golden age of creative wealth? In a sense, of course there was. We just need to think of what's happened in the last 200 years when we've moved from a first an agricultural society then to a very primitive industrial society in which people lived in terrible conditions to the world we live in now where people don't just have indoor plumbing and light, they have uh, access to each other on Zoom and Internet. Uh, the world has been transformed. So enormous amounts of wealth have been created, yes, to the benefit of more or less everyone. Not the same amount to everyone necessarily, but to the overall benefit of more or less everyone. There has been a golden age of wealth creation, unprecedented essentially in the history of the world. Ahmed, would you say this golden age, this unprecedented golden age, has made society more polarised or less polarised? The creation of wealth over the years, as John mentioned, has, has increased exponentially, one would say, but it's also increased the gap between the rich and the poor exponentially as well. And that may result to a form of polarization that maybe wasn't there prior to this massive explosion of wealth creation. I think that's probably coupled with a lot of other factors. We can't simply put it down to just simply golden age of wealth creation. It's coupled with the fact uh, with technological innovation and the way that social media is being used, the way that we communicate with one another is completely evolved. Previously, somebody sitting halfway across the world had no idea what other people were thinking on the other half of the world. But now, because of social media, we have sort of a way of communicating with one another, which for better or for worse, does lead to some form of polarization. John, would you agree that the gap's in increased or hasn't there always been a gap between rich and poor? There's always been a gap. And I find it very hard to say that the world before the Industrial Revolution, the world which had Louis XIV and Louis XVI in it, or King Musa of Mali, who took 60,000 followers on, with them on his pilgrimage to Mecca, I think I find it quite hard to say uh, that the world today is more unequal. I agree in the sense that perhaps the actual value or the actual wealth that existed and the difference between the rich and the poor in terms of the actual value of wealth was probably not so dissimilar to what it is today. And I think it becomes more problematic when we think about the way that business is conducted. And this is where I think things get a bit complicated because let's take luxury fashion, for example. Now, a lot of luxury fashion is developed in Europe, but some of it is also developed in the developing countries where workers are exploited. And these items are then marked up at 100,000 times the price that they're actually made to, to cost to actually make um, and sold to people who pay even more for it. Yet the conditions that these workers are living in is drastically less. But previously, that probably would have gone unobserved. The cost of you know the creation, the person who's wearing the rich clothes is not really interacting with the person who's making the clothes. But now 
because of the way that the world's become more globalized because of social media, because of communication democratized, it's put these issues onto surface and perhaps in the minds of people has created the problem of wealth creation and inequality higher on the list of priorities. I I think that's right. And if one goes back to the 18th century, the French peasant never saw Louis XIV or Louis XVI. And indeed, if I recall, if if he did happen to pass by, the peasant was required to avert his eyes rather than uh, look at the Sun King. And more than that, the peasant never really imagined that things could be other ways. And I guess it was in part the Industrial Revolution that changed that. People understood with the Industrial Revolution and indeed the Enlightenment, and we have to take all these things together. But things didn't have to be that way. And then it's not surprising that we have very different attitudes as well as very different knowledge today. On the other hand, um, Jeff Bezos is a very rich man because he has built an enormously successful business, which has uh, made a lot of difference to a lot of people. And I think um, people have rather equivocal attitudes to that. I think the wealth of Bill Gates, for example, arouses less resentment, partly because people can see what he's done and how people benefited from the personal computer revolution. And also because he he seems to be a decent person who has shown a sense of obligation uh, in disposing of the wealth which he has received during his lifetime. Talking of Bezos and uh, Bill Gates, I was wondering, and this is more for Ahmed, whether machine learning and your work in AI can shed any light on wealth creation. I think one of the questions about machine learning in context of wealth creation is primarily in the context of automation, where automation factors out human labor to maximize the wealth and profits of a particular company. Um, you know, whether it's Amazon trying to automate their factories or whether it's Uber trying to, you know, create self-driving cars, there's this sense that ultimately what AI and machine learning is trying to do, there are some skeptics who believe this, is to factor out human relevance and and factor out a lot of these jobs that are traditionally very human-centric to ensure that they can run them at efficiencies and costs much lower than a human would cost. So one of the fears that a lot of people have with regards to machine learning and AI is that it will concentrate wealth amongst the very few in a way that you know governments or companies that possess the best skill and talent with regards to machine learning will sooner or later become the future Rockefellers and Carnegies of the technology world. I have some difficulty here that people rightly say that jobs in Amazon warehouses are pretty crap jobs. And then we say these are jobs that are going to be replaced by robots in the next 10 years, and they almost certainly are. And we deplore that too. I mean, what has happened throughout the uh, the Industrial Revolution we've been describing is that one kind of jobs has been replaced by another, and mostly overall for the better, so that people in Britain no longer go down coal mines anymore. These were jobs that created an extraordinary sense of community, and people were proud of what they did, but they were terrible jobs. And I think we should be in overall glad that people don't go down uh, 
good on minds anymore. Now, what is happening as a result of this is that we've removed a certain kind of typically male job, which was done in large manufacturing plants. A lot of these things, kind of jobs have disappeared. And that has undermined a lot of people's sense of community and self-worth. I think we have to worry a lot about the consequences of that. And then we see some of the, the consequences of that. That's kind of the factors that um, uh, gave rise to the kind of Brexit sentiments. In our book, Greed is Dead, Paul and I took as examples. There's two places, one was Stoke and the other was Don Valley. Stoke was somewhere where there was a, a traditional ceramics industry, that ceramic production has now very largely gone to Asia. Don Valley was a mining area uh, and these jobs have gone. The largest employer in Stoke and Trent now is Bet365, the online betting system. Uh, the largest employer around Don Valley are logistics warehouses. We suspect Amazon is in fact the largest employer there. People are not unemployed. They're, they're not impoverished either by these changes. But they're not jobs that provide them with the satisfaction which previous generations of manufacturing and mining jobs. The fear that I have personally is that there is this sense that technology is going to be continually innovating, which it will be. And then as a result, one of the problems that I see right now is a lot of people are becoming software engineers. They're, you know, one of the initiatives that we have in the government as well, the policy in Pakistani government is to train more people to become software engineers. But the thing that worries me is the rate at which this is happening. So, you know, the example that I heard many years ago from Clay Christensen was that, you know, this innovation of ice, the ice was, you know, mined and then it was stored in a factory and then eventually fridge, you know, fridges, freezers were created and you can have ice at home. But the duration between those innovations was several decades. Now, the, the innovation that we're seeing now, the rate at which technology is changing now is far quicker, at least from my perspective. That quicker change in technology means quicker changes of skill sets required, which it's unclear whether or not you know, we will be able to adapt as quickly. Um, and hence why you see sort of a rise of different self-tutoring courses online, coaching courses, like how to become a software engineer, how to code. And it's just there's an explosion of these sorts of courses which are trying to fill this perceived gap, which will eventually become another vacancy. I think, Ahmed, you're probably over-influenced by the sectors in which you work and, and in which you do research. On the other hand, I feel excited by the technological possibilities, not just narrowly within AI, uh, but the ways in which that is affecting things which, um, which we would not normally think of as being information industries. It's obvious examples are probably vehicles where we're seeing moves to not just electric, but autonomous uh, transport, and in healthcare, where there are clearly transforming prospects uh, brought to that by, by healthcare. This is what happened in the past with other fundamental innovations, like the development of electricity. And at first, it's, a, it's confined to a narrow area in which the implications of innovation seem obvious and are largely within the sector itself. But then you, um, then you get the extension of these innovations into uh, much wider areas. I don't think when Thomas Edison was developing the 
the electricity network. Anyone imagine that it would help the problems of cleaning the house by giving people vacuums? Far less give people computers that they would have on their on their desk and indeed on their laps. But it, eventually, it did over a hundred years or more. I think that's what will happen with AI. It will change all our lives in in ways that we can't yet imagine. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. I'm discussing wealth creation this week with my guests John Kay and Ahmed Zaidi. Let's go back to John Coates of the Judge Business School and the laddish traders he studied. The second thing I noticed was that women were relatively unaffected by the frenzy surrounding the dot-com bubble. I came across a very, very powerful model that's been tested in a number of different animal species, and I thought this model may be applicable to the financial markets. In this model, it's called the winner effect. Two male animals go into a competition. Their testosterone levels rise in preparation for this competition. The winner comes out of that competition with even higher levels of testosterone, while the loser comes out with lower levels. Leaving biology to one side, the sacred scriptures of all faiths have plenty of advice about wealth and how it should be managed. There's a New Testament parable about Jesus and the talents. And the Hebrew Bible states a faithful man would abound with blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. Ahmed, what does Islam teach about wealth creation? I think a, a core function of Islam and wealth creation is um, the sort of mandatory zakat that's imposed upon the wealth that you create. Uh, the 2.5%, which is mandatory amongst all Muslims. The other more contentious area of exploration amongst um, Islamic scholars is the role of interest and whether or not interest is allowed. Depending on your school of thought, it's different. Um, but there is this idea that charging interest is forbidden and therefore you shouldn't be able to apply for a mortgage or take a loan from the bank. From a practical perspective, I know that this is a create a lot of challenges for you know many young home buyers or younger couples who are trying to get into the, the property market and create assets and wealth for themselves but uh it's an area that is constantly debated and discussed explain to naked reflections listeners how does sharia finance actually work on broad strokes the way that islamic finance sharia finance works is that it ensures that the money that is loaned to you doesn't come from sources that are uh, you know, companies that are non-Sharia compliant. So it wouldn't come from an alcoholic company or a company that doesn't, uh, or a betting company for that matter. Um, the, the challenge is for that service, because it's less in demand, the interest rates are actually higher uh, and the service charges are actually higher. Well, they don't call it interest. That's the thing. It's uh, a little bit of a lingo game here. They, they call it a service charge or, or an administrative charge as opposed to interest and it's fixed. So all faiths work out ways of getting around the system, don't they? But that's how it works. It's essentially an admin charge, which would be the equivalent of an interest charge. Is that fair? That's fair. Asking sort of philosophical or religious questions, I can't help but ask whether wealth creation is inherently sinful. And, and the reason I, I ask that is that, that there are going to be winners and there are going to be losers. Or am I just being idealistic? Well, there are going to be losers, but as we were describing earlier in the podcast, overall, there have been a great many winners. It seems to me very hard to argue that bringing people plumbing, electricity, dramatic improvements in infant mortality, 
it, it's very hard to argue. I'm not a religious person myself, but I would you to have to do a lot to persuade me that these were things that were sinful. I suppose the pushback on that, John, isn't the denial that improvement in the standard of living and those factors aren't to be welcomed. I think we'd all welcome them. The question is about the lack of balance in that creation, in the growth of those assets. Well, what do we mean by lack of balance? We talked earlier in the discussion about inequality, and I think we've recognised some problems there, but also understood that issue better. By lack of balance, I suppose you might mean the motivations of people who do these things. That um, Do we think it's uh, a bad thing if people do good things for rather base motives, which is indeed part of what happens under, under capitalist economies with a profit system? Perhaps, but that doesn't detract, in my mind, from the good things that they're doing. Charles Handy, Calls himself a social philosopher, who's written a great deal about physics, has talked really about proper selfishness. And I think that's a, a rather helpful phrase. It is the sense that people, and we know perfectly well that people go to work to get paychecks, but they don't only go to work to get paychecks. They also go to work to get job satisfaction and the camaraderie of the, the workplace. We had began at the beginning of this session by talking about the financial sector. And the financial sector seems to me a bit of an exception in that most of the people I know in business or, or law or medicine or whatever who earn a great deal of money also take a great deal of pleasure and pride in what it is they do. The finance sector is, I think, the only one where I see quite a lot of people who are making a lot of money and don't much like what they're doing and don't realise that perhaps a lot of it isn't very valuable. I think in that sense, the finance sector may be an exception to the generality of what people are doing in, at work and in business. Why do you think that is, John? I mean, you've been looking at this area for many, many years and you've identified the financial sector. I think you're suggesting it's a less happy environment in which to work. People perhaps are less proud of what they're producing. Is that right? I do think that, that a lot of people in the finance sector are not very, either are not very proud of what they do or they simply don't think about the social value of what it is they do. And how has that happened? I think we've had a kind of self-fulfilling world in which because there was a lot of money around in the financial sector, it became attractive to people who were principally motivated by money. And that aggravated the culture in which money became the dominant motivation for people's behavior. So overall, it created the dysfunctional culture, which has produced both a lot of simply unattractive, indeed even repulsive behaviour, and which has also diverted the finance sector in large part from the necessary functions that we actually need a financial system to, to provide. John has raised this um, area of proper selfishness and also discussed the area of the, the financial sector where people, in his experience, are less happy, put it like that, in the work that they've done. And I'm just wondering whether that's specific and only relevant to, for example, the capitalist uh, uh, sector, 
or are there lessons beyond that? And thinking about your own work and advice to the government of Pakistan, for example, what, what lessons might there be? The way that a lot of people might view capitalism or the finance sector is that it's not immoral, it's amoral. That thinking about you know, morality or thinking about ethics is almost not a priority because that's not what's that's not what's being measured. Um, there's an interesting conversation through the Wolf actually uh, had with uh, Sir Ronald Cohen, and he talked a little bit about Adam Smith. That prior to writing The Wealth of Nations, he wrote the Theory of Moral Sentiments, and the idea that innately humans do want to be moral, that we have this sense of morality, but the system and the way it's constructed is perhaps not rewarding that morality. The former head of the Japanese pension fund, he used to mention that Japanese companies were often criticized for their slow growth. But the interesting thing is that if you look at the longest lasting companies in the world, half of them are Japanese. And what he was arguing was that the slow growth was because they had different priorities. The Japanese companies are very community centric. I think the challenge in Pakistan is is around the way that wealth is distributed. Pakistan is largely landowners based. So there's a lot of landowners who then own a lot of property. And within that property, they have either farmlands or uh, factories. And the way that that land is distributed is something that's constantly disputed. The challenge in Pakistan right now is that the population is over 200 million people, yet the wealth is concentrated amongst very few and the level of literacy rate is dropping. So one of the main challenges for Pakistan is, you know, skill development. John, are there any lessons from your work in the wider field that you can apply to what Ahmed's been saying about Pakistan in terms of developing these skills and the issue of the, of the low level education? I've been very reluctant to give advice uh, about Pakistan, which is a country I've only ever spent, I think, one day in in my life. And I think people should refrain from doing that. But I have thought several times in the course of this conversation about the fact that I'm from Scotland. And Scotland is a country which moved from being at the end of the 17th century to one of the backward, primitive, undeveloped societies in the world, to being by the end of the 19th century, one of the richest, most prosperous parts of the world, and also one which had produced in the course of that an extraordinary amount of um, enlightenment, thought, literature, etc. It is an example of economic development in which I think actually religion played a, a quite substantial part because the, the Protestantism in Scotland, which insisted on educating the population to access the Bible itself and imparted a mixture of literacy and honesty that enabled Scots to play a part not just in the Enlightenment, but in running the British Empire and the like, created that prosperity back home. The history, which I'd like to find some time perhaps later in my life, to, to study and write about it uh, at greater length. And I'm sure it's a history which is potentially a lot of relevance to a country like Pakistan that needs, as it were, two centuries of that kind of achievement which characterized Scotland. That's really an interesting insight. 
one of the other insights that John you're talking about with the Enlightenment is that there was there was some level of stability in the minds of people. And I think the challenge in Pakistan is that if you look at the trajectory of Pakistan's short history, there's a decline. In the 70s, the Pakistani economy was one of the fastest growing economies in the world. But close to the end of the 70s, early 80s, you see a sharp decline. And that's sort of the rise of the the war with Bangladesh, you had the war with India, and that just resulted in a constant decline of Pakistani security and stability, which made Pakistan become a lot less attractive for investors, for people seeking to start new businesses. John, is there something to learn from the 1970s as far as the financial sector is concerned? Yeah, I think there are two big developments in the 1970s, which we need to understand. One was that there was a sort of backlash against the 1960s, uh, the, the kind of social revolutions and changes that have happened there which led to a group, particularly in the United States, but also in the, in the UK and Europe, who wanted to promote the idea of business and take over and produce a counterweight, in effect, to what they saw as the left-wing influence of academia and education on political dialogue. So there was that background, and that was accompanied, in the case of the financial sector, by the rather specific developments in globalization and in technology, which enabled a whole variety of things to be done in the financial sector that had not previously been possible and created a kind of culture emanating from the US and UK, which really spread across the world and which came to create a much larger and much less disciplined financial sector than the one that had existed and your typical contact with the financial system was the local bank manager who'd grown up in the community. Well, we're going to have to leave the Scottish-Pakistan dialogue there. That's all we have time for this week. It's time to close the deal. Thanks to my guests, John Kay and Ahmed Zaidi, and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, check out our back catalogue of discussions, 90 or more, or listen to other Wolf Institute podcasts or podcasts from our friends, at the Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with some more guests. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.